Welcome to the Christchurch London podcast. This is a talk from our Bethnal Green service. To find out about upcoming talks at each of our services, or to listen to other talks, please visit ChristchurchLondon.org. Actually, Raf, these guys are really nice to me. It's just you that's mean to me, just to clarify. Um, great. How is everyone? Good, great. Um, as Dee said at the start, we're taking a break from our sermon series on Proverbs. We'll be back on that next week. Um, but as we lead into this week of prayer, which we've talked a lot about over the last few weeks and today, I just wanted to take this opportunity to talk simply about prayer, uh, what it is, some of the struggles we have and face when it comes to prayer and how we might overcome them. Um, and when we talk about prayer at church, I think there's probably around four reactions that happen in the room, even when we were announcing that we were having a week of prayer. The first is like, yes, come on, you love prayer, you know, every week is a week of prayer for you, it makes no difference if we're doing it or not. And others of you might be a little bit like, eh, okay, cool, this is what churches do from time to time, I don't really mind, I'm happy to, to go with it. And then there'd be others of us who might be like, oh no. You find prayer really difficult. Uh, you want to enjoy it, but you don't. And this is just going to be another reminder of that, just another kind of jab in the side that you don't pray as much as you, as you should, or you kind of carry the sense of guilt that you don't pray enough. And for others of us, there might be this reaction. We may have been uh, carrying prayers for years and years, and we've persisted in prayer, but you feel like God has been quiet. Well, if any of these reactions are you, you are almost certainly not alone. For many of us, prayer can be a little bit like Marmite or Raf's fashion sense. You either love it or you hate it. Um, <clears throat> I actually, I feel like we're dressed quite similar, so that, was, that wasn't the most creative, <laughs> the creative dig, but there we are. Um, you either love it or you hate it. And what I'm, I guess what I'm hoping to do today is just lay a foundation so that we can all have a better understanding of what, uh, what prayer is, why we think it's really important. Um, but particularly why it's so important for us as a church right now and potentially try to discern a few uh, ways and the best possible way to, to kind of do prayer, if I can put it like that, to remove some of the mystery and challenge that we can all have with prayer and for us uh, to go into this week all together as a community with a better understanding about what it is, but not just that, also an, an excitement and an anticipation about what God might do through our prayers. Now, I've only got about 25, 30 minutes to talk about this, so um, this is not going to be the comprehensive talk on prayer. There's loads we could talk about when it comes to this subject, and I'll be jumping around different uh, passages rather than delving right into one. But I just feel like I could just say, if you want to grow in prayer, you, I feel like you're in the right place. If you've struggled with prayer your whole life and feel like you've gone through false start after false start, you're in the right place. There's a conviction in me, um, but also us as a church, that we really need to grow in what we're kind of saying is our prayer muscle. Dee asked me early, where, where, is the, where is the prayer muscle? Which was a valid question, but uh, it doesn't exist. It's a hypothetical muscle of the body. Um, but if we're really to see the things that we want to come to fruition, come to fruition. If we are to grow in our discipleship to Jesus, if we're going to see more people come to know him, and if we're going to see this area renewed and this city renewed, then we need to be strong at prayer. And whatever season of life you're in as an individual, the successes, the challenges, the hopes for the future, and for us as a community and as a church together, I think the first place that we start is the same. It's in prayer. And yet for many of us, our experience has been one of struggle, of boredom, or confusion when it comes to prayer. 
But I believe, both for me as an individual, but us as a church, if we're going to do one thing right, it needs to be prayer. And so today, what I'm going to do is just list a few of the common struggles that we might have when it comes to prayer. And then I'm going to give a solution as we lead into this week, but also as we lead beyond this week too. And if, it was, if I was to give a title to this talk, it would be the same request the disciples asked Jesus in Luke 11, and it's what's on the front of your prayer devotions. I'll just read it. Luke 11, verse 1. One, one day Jesus was praying in a certain place. When he finished, one of his disciples said to him, Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. And there's a couple of things I just want to pull out from this really simple verse. Firstly, it describes Jesus as praying, but we also know that the disciples were with him. And I find that really intriguing, because it doesn't say uh, while Jesus and the disciples were praying in a certain place. Jesus was the only one praying. And so what were the disciples doing? And we, of course, don't really know for sure what they were doing, but the fact that they asked that request, they have that request, Lord, teach us to pray, it suggests that they either weren't praying, or they weren't, they weren't praying like Jesus, or they weren't praying at all. And if they were, they wouldn't need to ask. And I think they might have had a similar experience to prayer as we do. We're not quite sure how to do it. We might find it a bit boring, or we're not really sure what to say, or even why we should do it. And there's even a story later on in the Gospels where the disciples fall asleep while they're praying. And I'm sure many of us have had a similar experience to that as well. But I think, I think the disciples were watching Jesus. And when they saw him praying, they were like, wow, I want to pray like that. And so often Jesus, between preaching and healing and traveling, is described as going away to a quiet place to do what? To pray. Prayer was at the, at the epicenter of everything Jesus did. And so the disciples are watching Jesus, how he lives his life, and they're watching him pray, and they're, they're like, teach me, teach me how to do that. And can you just imagine what it would have been like to watch Jesus pray, how amazing that would have been? Can you imagine watching his face listening to the words that he prayed. In fact, just two chapters before this uh, passage in Luke 9, it says that Jesus, Peter, James, and John went up a mountain to pray, and while Jesus was praying, the appearance of his face altered, and his clothing became dazzling white. We call this moment the transfiguration of Jesus, and we won't go, in, won't go into it today, but again, it just emphasizes not only the importance of prayer to Jesus, but also the power that prayer has. And it's just no wonder why the disciples are just like, teach us how to do that. Now, before we continue, I just want to caveat that I have struggled with prayer my whole Christian life. I've always found it difficult. But when I read the accounts of Jesus praying, it's like my heart longs to do that, particularly since moving to London, if I'm honest. But I've still found prayer so difficult, and I've been on a journey in my own life to try, particularly over the last couple of years, to try and grow in prayer, and I've still got a lot of growing to do. But there seems to be this almost natural inclination in us to want to pray, whether we find it easy or not. In fact, a recent poll reported in The Guardian early this year showed that half of people who would identify as atheist or agnostic pray in moments of crisis, with prayer for family and friends being the most common reason. And I watched a discussion recently with an atheist, a well-known atheist, who on occasions just feels like she has to say thank you to some, something and someone because she, to, someone or, to something or someone she doesn't know exists because she just gets overwhelmed with the beauty of life at times. And I believe that's in us because we were all made to pray, to have relationship and conversation with the one who made us. 
And I really want us to begin to grow a culture of prayer in this service. I want us this week to grow in our prayer muscle as a church, but also individually. And I want us to have this posture, just like the disciples, where we see Jesus, we read how he lived his life, we read how he prayed, and how important and powerful prayer was to him, and say to him, Lord, teach us how to do that. And so I'm going to list, uh, go through three solutions to three of the main challenges I think we face when it comes to prayer. And the first one is clarity instead of confusion. So much of my struggles with prayer have come from a confused view and perspective of what prayer actually is. What is prayer? And if we're going to talk about growing in prayer, and that is really important for us as a church, what on earth is it? Firstly, prayer is not just communicating with God. If our definition of prayer was uh, communicating with God, we'd be right to a certain degree, but I think, it's, uh, not, I think it's an unhelpful definition because we're communicating with God all of the time. So much of our life communicates to God something about our priorities, what we love, what we're passionate about, what we hold dear and hold sacred. Even if it's unintentional, our life will communicate something to God. I can communicate to my wife, Dee, without having to speak directly to her, for example. I could tell Dee how much I love her, how beautiful I think she is, how funny she is. Um, and when I read this talk to Dee in the week, she just went, vom, when I, uh, when I read that bit out, which means vomit, which is a word I'm for keeping that in during that, that moment. Um, but if I didn't spend any, any time with Dee, or if I prioritised my hobbies or my job before her, I'd be communicating something to her about where my heart is. And in the same way, we communicate with God all of the time. And so prayer becomes something slightly different. It's not just communicating to God, but it's intentionally communicating to him. And to help us, let's just read Jesus' response to the disciples' request in Luke 11. It should be on the screen behind me. Lord, teach us to pray just as John taught his disciples. He said to them, when you pray, say, Father, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Give us each day our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who sins against us, and lead us not into temptation. There's a narrative to this prayer that is completely purposeful and can help us immensely when it comes to understanding what prayer is. And I don't think Jesus was saying to us that we needed to use these words every time we pray, but I think he uses this as an opportunity to show the disciples where his heart is at when he prayed. And I think there are three really key aspects to this prayer that can help us shape and form our own prayer lives. And the first is that prayer comes from a place of relationship. The first word sets the atmosphere for the whole prayer. Father. It says something about who we're praying to and what our relationship is to that person. We are God's children. We are called to have relationship with him. And so when we pray, we are praying to our Father in heaven. And not only that, we are praying to a God whose name is hallowed. And to hallow someone is to call out as holy, as special, as set apart. And just like in Isaiah 6 where he sees this vision of the Lord and the angels are singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. We are kind of joining in in that cry to God. We're recognizing who he is and what he is like. He's our father and he is holy. When you pray, do you know who you're praying to? Do you know who he is and what he's like? And your perspective on who you think God is and what he's like will influence your view on prayer. If your view of God is that he's angry and vindictive and vindictive, just waiting for you to mess up, that will affect your prayer life. 
But if your view of God is that he is a father, he is your father, and that he is holy, that will open up a whole new dynamic when it comes to prayer. God is holy, he is powerful, he's all-knowing, but he's also your father who loves you, who is eagerly waiting for you to come to him and offers us forgiveness, joy, grace, and mercy. So much of my life, my attitude towards prayer has been a bit like a tick box. Like if I just do enough, if I fulfill my duty as a Christian, that would be, that would be great, that I'll be done. But that is not what prayer is supposed to be. Prayer is not an end in itself. We don't pray for the sake of prayer. We pray because we have a relationship with God who is holy and who is our Father. And so prayer is not supposed to be treated like a rite of passage, but um, a, if not the, key part of a relationship. And secondly, this prayer shows where our heart's desire first and foremost should be. It should be on God's kingdom and seeing his plan worked out before our own. It reorientates our heart. Jesus asks us to pray, let your kingdom come. And implicit in that statement is that in the situations of our lives, we're asking God to let his kingdom come before our own. And I don't know if you have similar experiences, but in my own life, or even if I'm just walking around London, I see things and my response is just like, this doesn't seem right. This isn't right. There's a better way to live. This is not how the world was intended. And my kind of only prayer I can really pray is, God, let your kingdom come. It was the cry of Jesus' heart and life, and it's to be ours also. And then finally, prayer is a place where we can bring our requests to him. We can ask God for things, for our forgiveness, for our daily bread, or in other words, all of, the, all of, all of our needs would be met. And as we live, he will lead us and be with us. But when we bring our requests to God, it comes from a place of a relationship with, a father, with our Father and a heart posture of seeking God's kingdom before our own. And so often, in my experience, I, I flip that prayer around. I go in with going asking for things without having established that relationship first. Bringing our request to God is not the primary role of prayer. It's part of it, but it's not the only thing or the most important. If I saw my iPhone purely as a way to tell the time or set an alarm, I would not be using it to its full potential, and it's the same with prayer and when we bring our requests in prayer. And what I'm not saying is that we should follow this formula every time we pray, and I'll talk a little bit more about that later on. But I think this is just a brilliant response from Jesus to the disciples' request. The disciples are watching Jesus, who has this incredible prayer life, and that is what he teaches them. Jesus knew and loved his Father in heaven. He was all about bringing God's kingdom before his own. And he was able to bring his requests to God in light of the first two. Now, I also don't think you need to have all these things in place before you pray. But I think what Jesus is doing is just giving some clarity uh, to where we might want to begin with prayer and kind of setting our priorities straight when we pray. And so the first thing is clarity over confusion. Know what prayer is and know who you're praying to. And then the second point is attention instead of distraction. So let's read a few verses, and I'll be jumping around the Gospels, but they'll be on the screen if you want to follow along. So firstly, Matthew 6, 5 to 6. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door, and pray to your Father who is unseen. Then your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And in Mark 1, 35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. 
And then finally, Luke 6, verse 12. One of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. If we want to grow in prayer, we need to get into a place of attention instead of distraction. Now, I don't know about you, but often when I sit down to pray, sometimes I just feel like I can't seem to concentrate. Either my mind wanders and I think about a task I've got to get done for some reason or I feel like I've got to replay a conversation I've had or anticipate a conversation I will have and I just find it really hard to focus. But I think it's just really interesting that Jesus seems to make it a priority to go to a place free from distraction when he goes to pray. I don't think it's an accident that he he goes somewhere else, and we read that, that he goes somewhere to pray. He doesn't just pray where he's at. He goes somewhere free from distraction to pray. Jesus didn't have a Netflix account or a phone, and yet he made sure he was in a place where he could give his complete attention to God. And I think it's even harder for us now. So if Jesus is making a habit of doing that 2,000 years ago, how much more should we do that now? And so much of our culture isn't just uh, distracting us, but it is, it is literally designed to distract us. Because the reality is, is that, that our attention makes money. And particularly now more in the digital age and technolog- technological age. And when I was an app designer before I worked for Christchurch, uh, often my task would be to think about ways I could keep your attention for as long as possible. And I worked in the news industry but how important or compelling the news stories kind of wasn't really uh, in my mind. It was all about trying to get you to open your app, which is why we have things like breaking news uh, notifications with the most dramatic headlines ever for kind of average stories. That's why we have kind of like middle, in the middle of an article, you'll get like another article that you could kind of go off and read if you get bored. Uh, and we track all that stuff so you can, we know when you leave the app so we can try and figure out ways to keep you there. It's kind of a bit scary when you think about it. Um, and there's even this term called uh, to gamify, where whatever products you're selling, you kind of make it like a game so people feel compelled to finish it. Have you ever had apps like that that have that kind of thing? Uh, we used to do things like top 10 news stories that if you read all 10, you get like a reward or a prize. And like you win, which obviously you don't win. You just wasted your time and the app wins and you lose. Um, <laughs> but, but James Williams, who uh, worked for Google, uh, he now studies the ethics of attention and persuasion. And he said uh, this in a really interesting article in The Guardian. There's an illustration, I think, that went with it. Yeah, the one before there. Um, but but this, was, this is what he said. There's a deep misalignment between the goals we set for ourselves and the goals that many of our information technologies have for us. This seems to me to be a really big deal and one that no one talks about nearly enough. We trust these technologies to be companion systems for our lives. We trust them to help us do the things we want to do, to become the people we want to be. We trust them to be on our side. Yet these wondrous machines, for all their potential, have not been on our side. Our goals have not been their goals. Rather than supporting our intentions, they have largely sought to grab and keep our attention. In their cutthroat rivalry for the increasingly scarce prize of persuading us, of shaping our thoughts and actions in accordance with their predefined goals, they have been forced to resort to the cheapest, pettiest tricks in the book, appealing to the lowest parts of us, to the lesser selves that our higher natures perennially uh, struggle to overcome. Furthermore, they now deploy in the service of this attentional capture and exploitation the most intelligent systems of computation the world has ever seen. It's pretty scary, right? Now, I enjoy using my phone and technology, but if I'm going to give my prayer life even the slightest chance of flourishing, I need to be aware of the distractions in my life that are trying to steal my attention all of the time. If we want to grow in prayer, we need to be intentionally giving ourselves the best chance of paying attention. So where could your solitary place be? Where is your mountainside? 
And it could be the same place you've always prayed, but just without your phone. Or it could be on your walk to work or sitting in a park somewhere. Where can you get free from distraction? And just a really small thing I've tried to do is just make sure my phone isn't the first thing I look at when I wake up and isn't the last thing I look at when I go to sleep. I just grew so tired of feeling kind of this compulsion to look at my phone that I just had to try and do something about it. And now when I wake up, I, I make a coffee, I read my Bible, pray in my chair in the lounge. Before I look at my phone, it's all lovely and idyllic. But it t- that takes time, and I don't do it every day. I still struggle. But that's become my solitary place. I'm determined to make that my solitary place. And it sounds simple, but that, those kind of things, those kind of changes in our routine and in our lives, they do take a lot of time. So don't be discouraged if you do struggle to do that initially. I didn't just decide that I needed to do that, and there I was. It took practice. It took repetition. Whenever we try to grow in something, it always takes time. And after Jesus taught the disciples to pray, do you think they were able to pray like him straight away? Of course not. It would have taken practice and repetition. You may be surprised to hear that I've only ever been to the gym once in my life. Um, Shocking with these guns, right? Um, The one time... Anyway, that was, a bit, that was a bit too loud, that laugh. Um, the, <laughs> the one time I did go, uh, it was a, with a friend of mine who was a riot police officer. Not only was he a riot police officer, but he was kind of obsessed with the gym, um, so he was, he was huge. Um, so there's little old Joel uh, with this giant of a man lifting weights together. Uh, it was real fun. Um, However, the big problem I had was that I'd, I'd never really lifted weights before, and all of a sudden I was trying to keep up with this guy who did it every, year, every day for years, and it was just a disaster waiting to happen. And my arms were so destroyed and weak after working out with him that I couldn't put my gear stick into reverse. And then when I got home, I couldn't, I couldn't lift my arms to wash my hair, so I had to do that to wash my hair. It was not pleasant. Um, but the big problem was that I wasn't ready to do all that, and, and it may surprise you, I've not been back to the gym since. Um, but if you want to grow in your prayer life, if you want to change uh, your habit or your routine, just start small. Know where you want to head, but make small changes that you repeat over time. The things we repeat form who we are. Repetition leads to formation. What do you need to do this week to give your full attention to prayer? That's why these guided prayers that we've given out can just be really helpful. Um, it just helps kind of keep your attention, keep your imagination, uh, and give you a guide to prayer. And I often find reading through a psalm or praying a psalm is also really helpful too. So we have clarity instead of confusion, attention instead of distraction, and finally, faith instead of disillusion. So let's read Matthew 21, verse 21. Jesus replied, Truly I tell you, if you have faith and do not doubt, not only can you do what, has, what was done to the fig tree, but also you can say to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and it will be done. If you believe, you will receive whatever you ask for in prayer. Now Luke 18. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show, to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared what people thought. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused, but finally he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care what people think, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice, so that she won't eventually come and attack me. And the Lord said, listen to what the unjust judge says, and will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth?
I think one of the biggest struggles we have with prayer is quite honestly not being sure whether or not it actually works and if God actually hears us. We live in a culture with a secular disposition and so the idea that there's a God who loves us and wants to have a, a relationship with us is just completely at odds with our culture. We've, brought up, we've been brought up in a world that doesn't acknowledge a spiritual life at all. And this can seep its way into our prayer life. 500 years ago, the cultural assumption was that there was a God. Now it's the opposite. And so this can have a chipping away effect on our prayer life. And J.K. Smith, on his, uh, in his book, How Not to Be Secular, puts it like this. The difference between our modern secular age and past ages is not necessarily the catalogues of available beliefs, in other words, the options we have uh, to believe in something, but rather the default assumptions about what is believable. Our culture's posture is that there is no God. Therefore, the idea of prayer can seem irrelevant, futile, and unbelievable. And so when we read passages like Matthew 21, which seems to suggest that whatever we ask, we get, this either becomes a way to prove that prayer doesn't work and therefore God doesn't exist, or it hits our faith that we begin to doubt whether God really cares for us or whether I'm loved enough for him to listen. And the reason why I wanted to put those two passages together was because of that contrast. Why do we need to be persistent if we supposedly should get everything we ask for? And those words by Jesus at the end of Luke 18 really hit me as I was preparing. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? And the fact that it starts with, however, I think is significant. He tells this parable about how we need to be persistent in our prayer to keep going. However, when Jesus comes, will he find faith on the earth? What if our prayers don't get answered like we think they should? Will Jesus find faith in us? Will he find faith in me? Be careful not to want what you're asking for more than you want Jesus. If that's the case, it's no wonder that these prayers might not get answered the way you want because my God would be providing you with an idol that would stand in the place where only he should be. Prayer is a fundamental part of the bigger picture that is the kingdom of God. Have faith that as you pray, that not only does it have the power to change those situations or that you're asking or even pleading God for, but also, that, um, but also that prayer is more than your requests and your relationship with Jesus is more than what he can do for you. We pray because we pray to him. We have a relationship with him. We get to know him. And Philip Yancey puts it like this. Most of my struggles in the Christian life circle around the same two themes. Why God doesn't act the way we want God to and why I don't act the way God wants me to. Prayer is the precise point where those two themes converge. If prayer stands as the place where God and human beings meet, then I must learn about prayer. Prayer is bigger than what you want God to do. And I know that some of our unanswered prayers have caused us pain and hurt, but I believe that even in those times, prayer is still the most important place for us to be because, as Yancey said, prayer is the place where we meet with God, our comforter. Did you know that the majority of the Psalms, essentially the book of prayer, the book of worship in the Bible, are prayers of lament, prayers of desperate grief and sorrow? Just as an example, prayer 13 says this, How long, Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I have overcome him, and my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. 
My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. The psalmist prayed, despite his situations, what he had in his heart, but he didn't forget who he was praying to you, praying to. And if this uh, idea of unanswered prayer, or you've been carrying prayers for years and years, is particularly relevant to you, I'd recommend you to read uh, God on Mute by Pete Gregg. And Pete talks about this paradox of having faith with both answered and answered prayer based on his own uh, difficult experience. But if you do think that God is quiet and you are hurting, you are in good company. One of the most famous uh, prayer requests, if I can put it like that, of all time was not answered in the way the prayer request was given. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if you are willing, take this cup from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. The cup wasn't taken from him. Jesus went to the cross. He suffered immensely. He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But look what happened next. Resurrection, new life, and our salvation. The Father didn't take the cup from Jesus, not because he didn't love Jesus, but because there was a bigger narrative at play. And there will be a time when that cry will be answered, where there will be new life and no more pain as you pray. But when you pray, don't be disillusioned or disheartened. Have faith in the God that you are praying to. If Hannah in the back can come back up. As I conclude, here's, here's the big reason why I think this is just so important for us right now. Your prayer life is an outward expression of the vitality of your faith. Prayer is the door we walk through to grow deeper in our faith, where you go from being an acquaintance to a friend, a spectator to a player, a consumer to a contributor. And as we begin this journey as a church uh, to grow in our prayer muscle, let's begin to get clear on what prayer is and why we should do it. For those of you who love prayer, perhaps this week can be a time for you to help and encourage others who find it hard. And pray that some of the excitement that you have for prayer will spread to the whole church. And for those of you who can maybe kind of take it or leave it or never really tried it, perhaps this week could be an opportunity, an opportunity for you just to reflect on how, you view, on how you view prayer, on how you view God. And is God calling you to a closer, deeper relationship with him this week? And that just really excites me. And for those of you who find prayer really hard, if you're still thinking, that's all fine, Joel, but I have no idea where to start, but just don't feel pressure. Don't feel guilty or don't feel like you're not good enough. Just be honest with God and just start with that. Let that be the start of your journey in prayer. And John Tyson, a pastor from New York, he just puts it like this. Just pray what you've got. Just pray what's inside. If there's confusion, pray that. If there's anger, pray that. If there's desire for more, pray that. If there's a desire to want to pray, pray for that. Just be yourself. Be honest with him. And let's give prayer the attention it deserves. And let's have faith that as we begin this journey together as a service, we would see God move more and more in our lives, in this church and in this city. That we would grow in our love for prayer because we grow in our love for Jesus. And we'll be praying for you all this week as we start this journey together, and particularly for those of you who do find it difficult. I'll be praying that this week starts you on a journey where prayer becomes as important to you as anything else. And we're going to worship in the moment, and we're going to sing a new song. Like most worship, it is a prayer. And it's a song that's been on my heart for 
pretty much the whole summer, to be honest. And some of you know this already. And the chorus says this, make me your vessel. Make me an offering. Make me whatever you want me to be. I came here with nothing but all you have given me. Jesus, bring new wine out of me. And that's the prayer of my heart as we pray this week. That we can come to God with the little that we have to offer. And ask him just to do whatever he wants with us. So as we sing, I just encourage you to make that your prayer too. Let's stand together and let's sing.